Well, before we get started in God's Word tonight, uh, just a couple of things. Uh, one, I hope that you uh, plan on being back next week. I know there's a lot going on. It's the end of the year. New Year's is coming up. Uh, but what we want to talk about, in fact, the next, uh, next week, we're really going to begin to talk about what is the mission statement of the church and really begin to define who we are as a church, what we're planning on doing, in particular for next year. And then, of course, January the 5th, we'll begin a series entitled, Who's Your One? And that's something that we're going to be talking about as a vision for 2020. So we're really excited about that, to unveil that, to kind of explain to you what that's all about, and uh, just see what God is going to do next year. And so, but before we get started tonight, we talk about the grace of the King. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this day, for all that you've given to us. Thank you for the opportunity to come into your house, to worship you, to exalt you, to praise you, and to glorify you. We ask that you would just be with us tonight to give us wisdom, to guide and direct us in everything that we do. Let it be your words that are spoken and not mine. Let it bring you honor and glory. So we just pray tonight as we look at this passage in Matthew chapter 1, that you'll give us a deeper understanding and why the importance of this part of Scripture is there in your word tonight. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you've got your Bibles open up to Matthew chapter 1, that's where we're going to be at tonight. Matthew 1, we're actually going to begin uh, in verse 1. We're going to be looking at a section of Scripture that uh, probably a lot of you have never thought about reading. But I wanted to kind of talk to you tonight. How many of you guys know the song, The Twelve Days of Christmas? How many of you are now singing that in your head? Yeah, exactly. I wanted to kind of share with you something, and this I thought was really neat. I did this one, one year with the kids and explained to them what the 12 days of Christmas are all about. And a lot of people don't realize that there is Christian symbolism behind that song. It was a way that the early church used to teach their kids some important facts. Ten drummers drumming actually represented the 12 points of the doctrine of the Apostles' Creed. The 11 pipers piping represented the 11 faithful apostles. Ten lords a-leaping represented the Ten Commandments. Nine ladies dancing represented the nine fruits of the Holy Spirit. Eight maids a-milking represented the eight beatitudes. Seven swans a-swimming, the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. Six geese a-laying, the six days of creation. Five golden rings. Every time you hear it, don't you just have to go, five golden rings. I don't know how it is. Every time you hear that, you just got to say it. Sorry. Five golden rings represents the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, or what's known as the law. The four calling birds represented the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Three French hens represented theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. Two turtle doves represented the Old and the New Testament. And a partridge in a pear tree represented our Messiah on the cross. It's so interesting when you think about the numbers and how they just add up and how they go down. But it was a way that they could teach the children some early facts about God's Word. And so it's something that's really important to us. When we think about this passage, and we're going to kind of do not really 12 days of Christmas, but we're going to look at five unusual graces in the lineage of the Christ. So look with me at Matthew chapter 1, and we'll begin in verse 1. It says, "...the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham." Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judas and his brethren. And Judas begot Phares and Zerah of Thamar, and Phares begot Ezrom, and Ezrom begot Aram. And Aram begot Aminadab, and Aminadab begot Nason. Nason begot Salmon, and Salmon begot Boaz of Rechab, and Boaz begot Obed of Ruth, and Obed begot Jesse. 
And Jesse begat David, the king. And David, the king, begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Urias. And Solomon begat Roboam, and Roboam begot Abai, and Abai begot Asa. And Asa begot Josaphat, and Josaphat begot Joram. And Joram begot Ozias, and Ozias begot Jotham. And Jotham begot Achaz, and Achaz begot Ezekiah. And Ezekiah begot Manasseh, and Manasseh begot Amon. And Amon begot Josias, and Josias begot Jeconias and his brethren about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconias begot Shilthiel, and Shilthiel begot Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel begot Abiad, and Abiad begot Eliakim, and Eliakim begot Azor, and Azor begot Sadak, and Sadak begot Ashim, and Ashim begot Eliad, and Eliad begot Eleazar, and Eleazar begot Mathan, Mathan begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David until the carrying away into Babylon are 14 generations, and from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations." Now, you read that passage, and I know many of you in Sunday school, if you were asked to read that, you would raise your hand and say, please, let me read it, right? <laughs> right? Can I just go ahead and kind of give you a hint as to how you can do it? If you read it fast and with confidence, nobody knows if you mispronounce it. <laughs> just zip on through it, and they won't know, right? You just do your best. But we want to look at these names, and we want to understand a few things. We're not going to look at every name, but we are going to look at several names because I believe this passage teaches us some really unique graces in the lineage of Christ. So first, we're going to begin by looking at five ungodly kings. Five ungodly kings, beginning in verse 7. We'll begin with Solomon. And interesting, he says, and Solomon. Now, a lot of people look at that and they say, well, what do you mean Solomon was an ungodly king? Well, you got to think about it. Solomon was a very good king, right? Solomon was a king who loved the Lord. He was a king who actually got to speak with the Lord. He's a king who actually, when God came down and asked him what he would prefer, what he would like for him to do for him, he said, I would like wisdom in order to know how to lead your people. So it was a very good offering that he asked for. He said, I want, I want to know, I want to have wisdom. I want to know how to help your people. He didn't ask for gold. He didn't ask for his enemies. He didn't ask for fame. But yet God gave him all of those things. The problem was, as you read further on into Solomon's life, and you come into uh, it's 1 Kings chapter 11. You begin to see Solomon walks away from God. He does. He walks away from God. And he walks very far away from God. Because he begins to marry all these women. Now you think about this. It, and this blows my mind. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. I can't even put up with one. <laughs> right? I might be going home alone tonight. Now you think about it, I mean, what in the world was he thinking? Well, that was the problem. A lot of people don't realize that a lot of his marriages came out of what? Out of peace treaties, all right? A lot of them he never was really with. They were just kind of spoils of war. In a lot of ways, he would go into these communities, and he would make peace with a king. And in order to make certain there was peace, he would marry one of the princesses, and that would keep a peace treaty aligned there because certainly he wouldn't want to go in and destroy his father-in-law's people. And so they would make peace, and that's why he ended up with so many wives. But the truth is, the problem was that he loved many of those women, and it caused a great downfall in Solomon's life to where he built many an altar and temple, and he gave it to these other gods, and he actually would go into those temples with his wives. A lot of people ask me the question, they say, well, you know, why is it that you have such a staunch stance on only Christians marrying Christians? Because the Bible has a staunch stance on that. A lot of people don't realize that if you marry into somebody who's not a Christian, they will be easily pulling you down a whole lot more than you'll pull them up. 
So it is vital and important you get that. Solomon is a key example of that. of marrying somebody who really wasn't resolved to live for God completely. And they pulled him down. Many of these women pulled him away from God. Now, here's the thing. I know Solomon was a great king. Solomon was a good king. But let's just be honest. Solomon was an ungodly king. And yet God still chose to go through his lineage. God still chose to go through his line to bring us the Messiah. Now, let me ask you this. How many of you have family that you kind of sit back and you shake your head and go, yeah, that's, that's family? Yeah. <laughs> Every time you get around them, you kind of get that little twitch a little bit, you know? Well, their blood, <laughs> um, distant, far away. You know, we kind of have that. And so a lot of people, you know, you'd look at the lineage of, of Jesus and you'd say, man, why did God choose them? Why did God go through that line? Was there not a more godly line? Well, God chose to use ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And God chose to use people that had fallen in great ways to still do amazing things. And Solomon is just the beginning of that. The second ungodly king we'll look at is Roboam. In verse 7, it calls him Roboam as opposed to Rehoboam. But Rehoboam was a king. He was the son of Solomon. Rehoboam was the king that had a chance to really do some great things because Solomon had set the kingdom up in a mighty, mighty way. In fact, Solomon had left him the kingdom. and It was in rich estate, had great peace treaties. Everything was going well. And all of a sudden, they came to Rehoboam and they asked him, they said, hey, we want you to loosen up what your father did to us. Will you please lighten up on the taxes? And so Rehoboam consulted his wise men. And he asked me, he said, what do you guys think I need to do? Should I, should I draw back on the taxes? And so the ones that were Solomon's keepers said, yes, that's exactly what you should do. You should lighten things up. You should make things easier on the people. Well, he didn't like their words, so he went and got his own counselors. And he asked them, what do you guys think I should do? And he said, you make them understand that your father's waist is going to be like your pinky. In other words, you're going to really put the vice grips on them. And when that happened, it split the kingdom completely. And 10 of the tribes went with another king by the name of Jeroboam who caused great sin in Israel. But Rehoboam had the two southern kingdoms. And sadly, even Rehoboam began to worship other gods and began to take them down the wrong path. And Rehoboam never served up and never met up to the standard of what a king should be. But it's amazing that God could even still use him. The third king is in verse 9, Ahaz, or better known as Ahaz. Ahaz is the king that's found in 2 Kings chapter 16. You say, well, what was wrong with Ahaz? Well, Ahaz had a lot of problems. In fact, the biggest problem that Ahaz had was he, when he came back after meeting with the Assyrians, he had gone into the temple of their God. And as he went into the temple of their God, he saw the altar that was made to their God. And he said, hey, I want the plans for that altar. Because I'm going to go back and I'm going to change everything in the kingdom of Judah. In fact, he sent the plans on ahead and he had the the guy make the altar and he was going to replace God's altar with that altar. And he began to take away the pieces that were a part of the the temple for so long and he began to remove everything within the temple because he was going to begin to worship the gods of the Assyrians. Now, when you begin to start messing with God's house like that, that's grave trouble. I mean, he really did. He took away the bath and he removed the oxen and he took away all these different pieces and it was just like, I want to worship like everybody else. Guys, when you begin to compromise who you are to be like everybody else, you're going down a path that is not a very good path. You see, we're seeing a a trend today where it can be very easy to emulate. 
I'll be honest with you. We could do like a lot of other churches, and we could put our smoke machines up here, and we could put a few laser lights up here, and we could have a rock concert. We could have the greatest band in the world, and we could rock out to Jesus, and we could do like so many other churches and make it like, like everybody else. But here's the problem. The problem is if you become like everybody else, what do you have to compromise? When you become like the world, what does that help? When you become like everybody else. Now, here's the thing. I mean, the truth of the matter, a lot of people say, well, here's the thing. The message doesn't change, but the methods do. I understand that methods can change. But when the method becomes the method of the world, you're destroying what God has built up. The truth of the matter is, is this king, that's exactly what he did. He tore down the things of God. He destroyed them, and he said, this is who we're going to be. We're going to be like everybody else. That was Israel's problem many times. They wanted to be like everybody else. They wanted, a, they wanted a king from the beginning, like everybody else. When God was their king, God led them. God chose to help them in every step that they took. They didn't need a king, but yet they wanted a king. So God gave them a king, and then it ended up going down and down and down and down. And you end up with kings like Ahaz, who want to bring the temple into the ways of the world. Well, the fourth ungodly king we look at, his name is Manassas, or also known as Manasseh in verse 10. Who's Manasseh? Manasseh is the most ungodly king Judah ever had. Manasseh was a horrible king. He was a king who brought in not just one set of gods, but he brought in the gods of all the other religions from around the world. He wanted to worship Baal, Astarte, Astaroth, all these other gods. He wanted to fit in like everybody else. In fact, the one god he didn't want to worship was the God of Israel. He cast him out to worship all other gods. And you want to know, you want to be honest, this reminds me of a lot of things that are going on today. Reminds me of our world today. They want to be accepting of all other gods except for Jesus Christ. Why is that? Because we serve a God, you ready for this? He is an exclusive God. You say, well, what do you mean he's an exclusive God? Well, he claims he is the only way. I don't have a problem with that. I have no problem with that at all. Jesus said, what? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. One way. Now, here's the thing. Let me ask you a question. Let's say you had cancer. All right? You go to the doctor, and the doctor tells you, okay, you got cancer. Here's what we're going to do. Here's the treatment. Here is how you can have this relieved and taken away from your life. Here's what's going to happen. We're going to give you this pill, and we're going to give you a shot and then we're going to have you do, you're going to have to do this exercise program, and then you're going to have to eat these foods, and you'll be cured. How many of you would do that? If you had cancer, be honest, how many of you would do that? I would change my diet, my sleeping habits, my workout habits. If you could tell me that it was going to cure me, I would do it. I wouldn't question, I wouldn't go to another doctor and go, hey, I'd like a second opinion, right? Well, I want a second opinion. I'd like to know what you think I need to do. That's the problem. Many people want a second opinion. You can go to all these other religions. Can I tell you, you can go and look at Buddhism. You can go and look at Muslims. You can go and look at all these other religions. Can I tell you something? Nobody in their religion can guarantee you an eternal inheritance in heaven. None of them. They can, they can tell you that there's a hope to. Buddhism just hopes that you eventually incorporate it into their Zen, into the Grand Buddha. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be incorporated into anybody. You know? I, I like the idea of heaven. I think it's a beautiful place. But here's the truth of the matter. You can, the Muslims even believe in heaven. But what you don't realize is, is they can't guarantee your existence to go into heaven. 
Even if you serve Allah with all your life, even if you go and commit a terrorist act, there is no guarantee that Allah will let you into heaven. Why? Because you got to work to get there. The only religion I know of that worked for you was Jesus Christ when he died on the cross for your sins. There's only one religion that comes by grace that only guarantees heaven, and that is through Jesus Christ. We don't have to consult other religions, but that's exactly what this king wanted to do. He wanted to bring in all the other religions, all the other gods. He wanted to make sure that he appeased everybody. Can I tell you something? I don't mind if people get mad at me just because I believe in Jesus alone. That doesn't bother me at all. Oh, how dare you say Jesus is the only way? Well, that's because he said he's the only way. Well, you should be inclusive. You should be okay with my... I'm okay with Muslims, but I'm also okay with the fact that they need Jesus too. I'm okay with Buddhists, but I'm okay with the fact that they need Jesus too. They will go to hell without Jesus. Plain and simple. Joel Osteen was given that opportunity to declare that. And what did he say? I don't know where they're going to go. I know where he's going to go. You see, I don't have to worry about other religions. I've studied them. I don't have a problem looking at it. And it's not that I look at those other religions and think poorly upon them. I just know that they all need Jesus too. And I I love it. I've got friends that are missionaries. I've got a friend that's in Amman, Jordan. I haven't heard from him in a long time, which concerns me a little bit. But he was willing to go over there and tell people about Jesus in a vastly Muslim country, willing to die for his faith so that they would know about his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Isn't it amazing that Muslims don't have to fear coming here to tell you about their God, but yet we have to fear going there to tell them about ours? What does that tell you? That ought to tell you enough in itself. Christians are not going to kill them. They just simply want to see them converted. But Manasseh was one of those kings that wanted to make certain that everybody felt okay. The last one we look at is Jeconiah in verse 11. It says, And Josiah begot Jeconias. Jeconiah was the final king almost, not quite. But here's the amazing thing about kings in the, in the lines of Judah. Typically, the really, really, really bad kings, except for Manasseh, were kings like short periods of time. This guy lasted three months. Three months. And you know what all it said? It simply said, he followed in the ways of his father. He committed the same sins. as. In other words, he didn't learn from his dad. This is something we can learn from that. You can learn. You ready for this? You can learn from your fathers, from the good and the bad. Can I tell you somebody? Can I tell you something? Nobody in here has a perfect father. I'm not a perfect father. I'm far from it. And you can learn from the good and the bad. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to fail. We're going to fall short. But what we hope for as dads is that you will learn to be better than us. It's that simple. Be better than us. But we hope to set the example we need to set. We're going to fall short. But here's the thing. This guy followed in the footsteps of his dad. He followed in this. Here's the thing I try to tell people. Okay, If your dad was an alcoholic, that doesn't mean you have to be one. If your dad was a drug addict, doesn't mean you have to be one. That always drives me crazy when kids want to blame their parents for their mistakes. You have the freedom to choose and do what you want to do. Stop blaming your parents for everything. Grow up and accept your own responsibility. Know that you are the one who makes your own decisions. Nobody forces it on you. 
Jeconias could not claim, well, it was my dad's fault. Can I tell you something? When you stand before God one day, you won't be able to say, well, well God, it, it was my mama's fault. She didn't tell me those things. It was my daddy's fault. He didn't direct me in the right path. No, you're going to answer for you. You're going to answer for your own life. Begin to accept responsibility. Jeconias was a terrible king that fell way short. So we've looked at five ungodly kings. Number two, let's look at four immoral women. Look in verse three. And Judas begot fairies and Zerah of Thamar. Now, isn't that interesting? I've never heard her name pronounced Thamar. It's usually pronounced Tamar. Now, does anybody know who Tamar is? You've got to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 38, right? Now, there's a really interesting story there. Did you know that? Now, let's be honest. A lot of people want to skip a story like this because it's not exactly a very good story. But there was a man by the name of Judah. He was of the 12 tribes of Israel. Judah had three sons. His first son married Tamar. Well, what happened? He was an ungodly man. He died, and he died without kids. Here comes the Levitical marriage rites. Did you know this? If your oldest brother married a wife, had no kids, and died, you were supposed to marry her and have a son in his name. How many of you would enjoy marrying your older brother's wife? Yes, many of you here going, oh, brother, I'm so glad we don't believe in Levitical marriage rights. <laughs> but that's how they had it. So guess what? Judah's next son married her. He wouldn't carry on the Levitical marriage rights, and he died. Up comes son number three, and Judah goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. I see a black widow coming on here, right? She done killed two of my boys. I'm not giving her the third one. And so he held him back, and he wouldn't give it to him. So once she realized that the youngest son was not going to be given to her, she dressed up as a street harlot. Judah happens to walk by, sees her. He's grieving at the time. He chooses to go in to his daughter-in-law. Seriously, is this a good story? I mean, you think about that. He ends up sleeping with her, and she bears twins through her father-in-law to carry on the line of his son that the youngest son should have carried on. Was it immoral? You better believe it. Can you believe that that's the line that Jesus is coming from? Can you believe that that's who God would choose to use? Somebody who would commit such a heinous act? Somebody who would do something so horrid? And yet, you know what Judah said? She was more righteous than I. Can I just tell you something? Weren't neither one of them righteous. Neither one of them. It was wrong through and through. But the reason why I bring this up, when you see this line, there's not one of you out there that can look at the line of your own past. You can't look back and say, well, it's all of their fault. Look at the line that Jesus came from. There were not that many great examples in his lineage. But yet God chose to use this line to bring about the Messiah. The second one was Rahab. Look at verse 5. And Solomon begot Boaz of Rahab. Her story is in Joshua chapter 2. What is Rahab? You ready for this? A harlot. My goodness. What in the world was he thinking, right? But she was what? She was the one who the spies came in and she hid those spies because of her faith in believing what God was about to do. She was, a, she was what? She was a 
Jerichoite. She came from Jericho. She wasn't even an Israelite. But God brought her into the lineage and would use the child that would be born through her to be a part of the lineage of the Messiah. You see, again, your past can't define you. In fact, God can use your past to influence you to bigger and better things. Look at the third one. Her name is Ruth. It says, and Boaz begot Obed of Ruth. Now, what was Ruth? Ruth was a Moabitess. You realize that, that Ruth was a worshiper of other gods. You say, well, are you? Now, wait a minute. I read the book of Ruth, and Ruth was a righteous woman. She became a righteous woman, but she was a godless woman. In fact, it's interesting when she meets Naomi, what does she say when she's going back to her land? She says, what? Let your God be my God. That was her declaration. Where you die, I will die. Well, what did that mean? That meant that Ruth was worshiping other gods before that. She was influenced by her mother-in-law. Even though she had lost her husband, she had lost her father-in-law, she had lost her brother-in-law. Even though uh, Naomi was going back to the land, Ruth said, I'm going to cleave unto you. I'm going to believe as you believe. I'm going to do as you do. But that was the woman that God would choose to use as a part of the lineage. Ruth was not a godly woman until a transformation happened in her life. Finally, look at verse 6. I can't even name her name. And David begot Solomon by her that had been the wife of Urias. We all know that that's Bathsheba. We all know the story, 2 Samuel chapter 11, right? What about Bathsheba? Was she an immoral woman? Well, the answer is yes, she was. Now, let me tell you something. Let me explain what happened here. David's problem was where David failed from the beginning was he should have been out battling like all the other kings. You read that in 2 Samuel 11. It was the time for kings to go out to battle. And where's David? He's at home. David goes up on his roof. Now, I want you to understand something. David goes up on his roof. He can see out over the entire kingdom. He happens to be able to look down where a woman was bathing. Bathsheba was not bathing to draw his attention. She went out there to bathe because that's typically where she went to bathe. David happened to look out. He saw her. And here's the problem. He beheld her. Then he began to inquire about her, found out she was married, and then he sought her, brought her in, and he slept with her. Oh, if that's not the worst part, because what does he do? He ends up finding out she's pregnant, and so he has to hide that pregnancy. So he brings in her husband and basically has him killed in the midst of war so that he can marry her and cover up his sin. But please understand, it wasn't just David's sin. Bathsheba had to consent as well. You see, God used these immoral women. God used these ungodly kings, and he brought them together to bring us the lineage of the Messiah. That's grace. Let's look at three promises. I like this one. Look at verse 1. It says, The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, Jacob begot Judas and his brethren. There are three promises found in these two scriptures. The first one is the promise that is given unto David. What are those promises that are given unto David? Well, you find them in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, where it reads this. And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I'll establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I'll establish a throne of his kingdom forever. And then in the book of Jeremiah, the prophet, Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 and 6. God speaks there when he says this. 
Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. And the days of Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is the name whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. He would be of the seed of David. This had been promised thousand years before Jesus was born, that the Messiah would come through the seed of David. Isn't it interesting because David was known as a man after God's own heart, but didn't we just talk about his act of indiscretion? He's a man after God's own heart, and yet he failed. Again, you can be a godly person and fail, but the question is, is will you get back up and start living for the Lord again? You see, even though David failed greatly, if you read Psalm 51, you see his psalm of repentance, and oh, what a beautiful psalm it is. David was truly broken over sin. Now, it took for another prophet to come up and speak to him and share with him what he had done wrong, but he came to that realization and he changed his ways. And he lived for the Lord through the rest of his days. When we look at this, when we look at this passage, we see this promise that was given to us by David or to David. We also see a promise that was given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. There's the promise to Abraham. This is one of my favorites. It says this, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I'll show thee. I will make of thee a great nation and will bless thee and make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing. And I'll bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Isn't that a cool promise? There's seven promises to Abraham, but it's the last one that means a lot to me. He says, in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That and a few other scriptures are the promise of the Messiah through the seed of Abraham. You see, God had this plan. You need to understand something. God had this plan of the Messiah from the beginning. Before you and I were ever created. Before the world was ever formed. God had a plan on Messiah. I kind of love Max Lucado. Max Lucado is a guy who can write in just very common everyday language. And in his book, A Gentle Thunder, he talked about the first three words. And he talked about how God had created life and how God had a plan of salvation. But the one that really stood out to him above all was the term Messiah. That even before God spoke this world into existence, there was the plan that God was going to have to die for our sins. Now, a lot of people would look at that and say, well, then why did God create us if he knew we would fail? Well, that's a question I can't answer. I'd love to be able to answer that question. But in all honesty, I would be guessing based on my finite mind trying to understand the infinite mind of God. What I do know is that God made a plan that salvation could come to you and me by the grace of God by sending his son to die on the cross for our sins. And that plan was from the very beginning that God wanted to take care for you, love you, and show you his grace and his mercy. And it comes through these promises, through David, through Abraham, and also through Judah. I love the one that's given to Judah in Genesis 49. 49, beginning in verse 8, where there it simply says this. Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down. He couched as a lion and as an old lion who shall rouse him up. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh 
come. What a promise. Now, this is Jacob's blessing upon, or Joseph's blessing, or Jacob's blessing upon his son Judah before he died. And he declares that Shiloh, the God of peace, will come through his line. I just love these promises because to me, it shows that God had a plan and God kept to his plan all throughout. So we see five ungodly kings, four immoral women, three promises. We also see two ordinary people, verse 16. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary. Who are Joseph and Mary? Have you ever just thought about that? Who are Joseph? Why did God choose them? We know very little. 